You are now listening to the September 8th broadcast of Unity in Christ. Today's topics are the history of the Biblio, the sex spiral, and grace upon grace. We will begin with the history of the Biblio. This program will examine how the Bible was recorded, inspect the archaeological evidence, as well as the different languages it has been translated into. Listeners, it's Jisoo from the History of the Biblio, where we learn about how the Bible has been preserved and translated. Last time, we looked at the Bible of the Middle Ages. The Bible was central to the culture and ideology of medieval Europe. But the Middle Ages was also a time when the common people did not have access to the Bible, and translating the Bible was strictly forbidden. This was mainly because the church grew steadily more corrupt placing the Pope's authority above the Bible. John Wycliffe, scholar and theologian, criticized the Church and the Pope for this reason. He also claimed that the Bible should have highest authority and translated the Latin Bible into English. His translation was the first time that both the Old and New Testaments were translated into English. About 70 years after Wycliffe's passing, a technology that would have great impact on human history was discovered. This technology was Gutenberg's printing press. Before Gutenberg's printing press, the Bible and all books were hand-copied. Because hand-copying books required time and great expense, books were only for nobles, scholars, and clerics. However, through the use of the printing press, many books could be printed at once. This allowed common people to obtain books. The Bible became more widespread. The Bible that had once been locked up in monasteries and cathedral libraries began being translated into many different languages and were dispersed to many different countries. The first book to be actively printed after Gutenberg's discovery was the Bible. The Bibles that Gutenberg printed during those times were Latin versions that came in two volumes. Of the 180 originally printed, 48 still remain in existence today. Printing technology also spread quickly to Germany, Italy, France, Switzerland, and more. Many print shops sprang up, and many different types of reading material began being printed as well. And of course, the most commonly published book was the Bible. In 1488, in the small Italian village of Sonsino, the first entire Hebrew Old Testament, called the Tanakh, was printed. And in various parts of Europe, Bibles in German, Italian, French, Dutch, and other languages were dispersed as well. This is a great change from the Middle Ages, right? During the Middle Ages, the Bible was only available to a small subset of the population. But through the invention of the printing press, the Bible became accessible to everyone in their native tongues. Right on the heels of such change came the Protestant Reformation. The medieval Roman Catholic Church was in a corrupted state emphasizing salvation based on merit and selling indulgences to build cathedrals and amass wealth. Martin Luther, many say, began the Protestant Reformation by posting the 95 Theses, criticizing these practices, and countering that the Bible should have the greatest authority. As a result, Luther was excommunicated from the church. But his theory that the Bible should stand supreme quickly spread far and wide. 
About 200 years before Luther, Wycliffe had stressed the authority of the Bible and translated the Bible into English. And Luther, who had echoed Wycliffe, also translated the Bible into German for many to read. Luther translated the Hebrew Old Testament and Erasmus's Greek New Testament into German. While a German Bible had existed before Luther, Luther translated the Bible into common, easily understood German so that all levels of society could read and understand the Bible. German, during Luther's time, was divided into various regional dialects, but Luther combined the various versions, making a common German language. Luther completed his translations in 11 weeks, and the minute the translations were complete, the prints flew off the press. Not only were the Bibles in common, easily understood German, they were also a reasonable price. Moreover, the people were eager to read the Bible. Johannes Cochleus, who had disproved of the Protestant Reformation, must have thought that only special people should read the Bible because he lamented of the rapid spread of the German Bible in this fashion. Even tailors and cobblers, even women and other simple folk who had only learnt to read a little German in their lives were reading it with great enthusiasm, as though it were the fount of all truth, while others carried it around, pressed to their bosom, and learned it by heart. Although Cochleus might have lamented, we know through his words that the people who could not access the Bible before were able to now read and study the Bible. Luther not only influenced the Bible's translation into German, he also influenced the Bible's translation into many other languages. Within one year of Luther's German New Testament, the Dutch Bible was published, followed quickly by the Danish, Swedish, Hungarian, Lithuanian, Polish, Romanian, Bohemian, Slovenian, and Icelandic Bibles. The Protestant Reformation, led by Luther and the great influx of Bible translation, allowed many who could not do so before the opportunity to read and learn from the Bible. Isn't that amazing? But this chain of events wasn't something Martin Luther created. It was all influenced by God and his words. Martin Luther, a monk, after studying and analyzing the Bible in depth, learned that salvation did not come from human effort, but rather came from faith and only through the grace of God. Luther read the Bible and then understood the gospel. Luther's 95 Theses, criticizing the Catholic Church's merit-based salvation ideology and the selling of indulgences as antithetical to the Bible, became the foundation for the Protestant Reformation. And the start to all this was the Bible. Luther wasn't overcome with a sense of justice and righteousness. He read the Bible, understood the gospel, and was compelled to convey the truth, which then led to the reformation and translation of the Bible. Luther himself said, I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. The word did everything. Just as Luther confessed, I hope that we too can proclaim God's word and stand humbly before his word. Today, we looked at the Bible during the Reformation age. Next time, we'll talk more about the English Bible. See you next time. Goodbye. Oh
Coming up next is a podcast series, The Sex Spiral, led by Pastor Dustin Daniels of Purity Ministry from Phoenix, Arizona. The program addresses sex with biblical grace and truth, without the shock value, and is a resource for anyone looking for biblical answers to pornography, singleness, marriage, family, and children. This program may contain mature language and subject matter. Welcome to God, Sex, and You, a daily discipleship podcast on healthy sexuality. Here's your host, Purity Pastor, Dustin Daniels. When you hear the word purity, what do you think of? If you didn't grow up in the church, is it like an old-fashioned, outdated term to you? And if you did grow up in the church, you made things like a a purity ring. Well, regardless, my guess is that it brings to mind something to do with sex or maybe abstinence from sex. But here's my question. Is that definition correct? Well, in this series, I'm going to teach on the subject of purity, what it is and what it means to you and how to apply it to your whole life, not just in the area of sexuality. I want you to think of holiness because God is holy. And one of the most beautiful pictures of God's holiness is in Isaiah chapter 6. Verse 1, it reads, It was in the year that King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne, and the train of his robe, it filled the whole temple, attending him were mighty seraphim. These are specific angels. And each of them had six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. And with two wings, they covered their feet. And with two wings, they flew. And then they were calling out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. See, the Lord is holy. He's different. The word holiness there, it means like no other. And as his sons and as his daughters, we are to resemble and look like our father. So in today's podcast, we're going to discuss several things. Number one, what exactly is purity? What does it mean to bend your ear? And why is that so important? And number three, why is our heavenly father giving us an incredibly powerful disclaimer in Proverbs 5 before he reveals his truth about purity. Today's lesson is titled, Made Perfect in Purity. Wisdom is not just knowledge, but it's discernment. It's learning how to apply what God is teaching us, correct? We think about wisdom We may think of a guy named Solomon, King Solomon. He was the wisest guy on the planet, the wisest man on the planet, right? But he had a thousand wives. Was that so wise? You know, it's been said that if you think you can't fall into sexual sin, then you're godlier than David, you're stronger than Samson, and you're wiser than King Solomon. 
And that's a great quote, but we all know that all three of those very, very godly men, they all had problems in this area of purity. So we're going to talk about purity today. What exactly is purity? On your notes, it's defined as an absence of a blemish, stain, and especially sin. It's an absence of a blemish, stain, or especially sin. See, purity is this concept of being free from contamination. You've heard the term pure heart. Pure heart is this, this idea of just being an undivided heart. My favorite definition next on your outline is nothing is mixed in. There's nothing mixed into your life. There's nothing mixed in to whatever it is we're talking about. So let me give you an example. Purity is the reason that, gentlemen, we pay a premium for pure gold when it comes to an engagement ring, isn't it? Purity is um, it's the reason that we pray a, pay a premium when we go to the grocery store and we buy extra virgin olive oil. Purity is the reason that a wedding dress is white. It represents something, doesn't it? It represents someone who is untouched. She's unblemished sexually. So once again, purity means that there's nothing mixed in to weaken the substance. There's nothing mixed in to devalue the person. Have you guys ever put bad gasoline in your truck or car? Didn't run so well, did it? The octane to the fuel was diluted. It was contaminated. There was something in there. And then you start hearing that knocking noise and, you know, it just doesn't run good. It starts to spit and sputter. It's because the fuel was not pure. What about a computer? Say so you go and you go to buy the latest and the greatest. You get it home. You hook it up, man. And you're working, surfing the web. And all of a sudden, you unknowingly download a virus. And all of a sudden, it starts to slow down, doesn't it? See, that virus, that impurity has now affected the entire operating system. Something's been mixed in. It's not supposed to be there. It's, you can think of it as an enemy. It's really a foreign substance. And it slows things down. It, it, it uh, ruins, it weakens the performance of your computer. And we can say the very same thing for our spiritual side of our lives. Not only does the book of Proverbs have a lot to say about sexuality, but so does the rest of your Bible. Now, before I begin, I know it's really easy for us to start feeling guilty right now. We start to feel uh, a little embarrassed because the preacher is talking about sex in church. And we all just want to run to the door. And we, we start getting our heads down, and we start to feel something, don't we? we? We start to feel a little bit of guilt and shame, and I'm, I'm not going to look at that guy up there. Mm -mm. And the reason that we, we, we feel this way is because we have all failed at some level when it comes to purity. At some level, all of us are just a little weirded out about this, this idea of talking about sexuality and God's design for marriage and sex and children. We're going to start in Matthew 5, verse 27 and 28. This is from um, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. This, these are the words of Jesus. Jesus says, You've heard it said, You shall not commit adultery. 
But I say that everyone who even looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Wow. Jesus says, you've heard it said, the law says Moses says this. You guys have all heard that. He's talking to the Jewish people. But the reality is Jesus says, you know what? I say, I say, that's authority. He's, he's my words right now, guys, trump what Moses said. I'm raising the bar to this thing called purity. I'm raising the standard of it. That's not good. That's not good for us, is it? But it's a standard that he has met. In fact, he's the only one that has met this standard. You guys catch that? He's the only one who has met this standard. And that's why we all feel a little, hmm, when it comes to sexuality. So if you guys just want to take a breath with me on three, let's just take a deep breath in. One, two, three. Oh, doesn't that feel good? Because I'm not going to beat you down with God's word. I'm not here to shame anybody. I am here to lift you up, and I've got good news for you, for those of you who have accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, because we're going to swim in the ocean of grace when it comes to God's sexuality, his definition of purity today. Proverbs 5, 6, and 7. Turn your Bibles to Proverbs 5. If I may be so bold to give you an assignment this week, and that is simply to read Proverbs 5, 6, and 7, and I want to introduce you to two women, Lady Wisdom and Madam Folly. Lady Wisdom and Madam Folly. That's next on your outline. Um, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time discussing the women, but I want to introduce them to you because when you read Proverbs 5, 6, and 7, you're going to realize the difference between those two women. Our attention today is going to be on the words from our Father. It's going to be on the tone and the tenderness of how a father talks to his children when it comes to this very sensitive subject of, of uh, purity and sexuality. So let's look at Proverbs 5, verse 1. Proverbs 5, verse 1. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding. You guys feel the tenderness there? My son. It's a term of endearment. It, it can mean my child. It's a term of affection and fondness. You know your heavenly father is fond of you? That he just doesn't love you, but he actually likes you and he wants to spend some time with you? You guys know that? He's fond of you. Be attentive. Be attentive to my wisdom. It means, I want you to pay attention right now, son. I, I, I want you to really hear what I've got to say. It's like we're sitting uh, drinking coffee with our father and it's really busy and it's really loud and there's lots of commotion. And like most of us, we're not paying attention to the person that's talking to us, right? And it's like our heavenly father just kind of reaches out and he, he grips, he just touches our chin and he wants to talk to us eye to eye. He just wants us to have full attention. That word incline, incline your ear to my understanding. It means I want you to turn your head. You know, when, you're, when it's hard to hear, you're like, what? But the Hebrew is more. The Hebrew says, I want, I want you to bend your ear. I want you to bend your ear to what I'm getting ready to tell you. Wow, that's quite the disclaimer, isn't it? 
This stuff must be really, really important. Verse 2, that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. Our Father is telling us, look, I want you to guard and preserve what I'm about to tell you with your life. I want you to change your behavior. I want, to, I want you to modify how you live because of what I'm getting ready to, to share with you. I want you to judge wisely. I want you to slow down and think carefully and ponder critically the words that I'm getting ready to share with you. And then he goes on in the rest of Proverbs 5, and he tells us how committing adultery is a really, really bad idea. But you guys already knew that. Of course you guys already knew that committing adultery is a bad idea. But don't you love the way that our Heavenly Father starts this discussion on purity? He knows how uncomfortable this topic is for us. He knows the shame and the guilt that go along with all of our mistakes. He also knows that everybody at some level in all of human history is broken when it comes to sexuality. And that's why he is so tender as he starts this discussion. Well, tomorrow we'll see how he does the same thing with Proverbs uh, chapters 6 and 7 as we continue our lesson on how the Lord makes us perfect in purity. Now, many of you listening right now may be thinking, uh, Dustin, I'm, uh, I'm not even close to being pure. <laughs> well, just so you know, I've been there and I felt that way too. Actually felt it for like two decades, so I can relate. But let me ask you this. What's stopping you from being pure today? I mean, have you believed in the lie that this purity stuff that the Bible is, is, is talking about is only good for other people? That it's not good for you? Well, listen, my friend, that's a lie. That's a lie straight from hell. Your tomorrow can be very different. You don't have to wake up and, and feel the weight and the shame of your past any longer. And here's the reason. Jesus Christ did not shed his blood on a Roman wooden cross and die the most painful death in all of history, conquer sin and death by walking out of his own grave for you to stay an addicted Christian. See, it is for freedom that Jesus Christ set you free. So what's holding you back? Is waking up in the morning and holding your head high just like a pipe dream? Is looking into the eyes of a beautiful woman and not other body parts, is that impossible for you? Well, actually, you know what? It is. Apart from Jesus, it is. And over my 20 years of being a pornography and sex addict myself, and now spending 13 years of walking with Jesus and being sexually sober, I've learned that there's, there's just got to be a structure to my own life. And it's a structure that dictates purpose. So if you're feeling those things, if you're feeling helpless and hopeless, let me encourage you to do something different right now. Let me introduce to you a structure that will help renew your mind with scripture that focuses on God's design for sexual purity. It's an audio devotional that only takes 35 days to go through. 
You know, many men, when I'm done speaking at a, at a men's retreat or a men's group or something like that, they'll ask me what I do, what I've been doing for the past 13 years. And that's what this thing is. It's an audio devotional. It, it takes just over a month to go through. And it's designed as an individual study because I know the embarrassment. I know the shame that all this stuff brings. And I want you to think of this as the first chapter into your new life of being sexually pure. So this audio series, really, it's an introduction to the book that's going to be coming out in January, but basically it's 13 years worth of recovery wrapped up in just 35 days. So anyway, I, I would encourage you to order it today. Go to DustinDaniels.org, click on store, and you can receive a 20% discount with the promotional code podcast. Thank you so much for listening to God, Sex, and You. I'm Dustin Daniels. You can follow me on Twitter at Purity Pastor. Email me your questions at DustinDaniels.org. And let's not forget what the Apostle Paul has to say. 1 Corinthians 4.20, the kingdom of God isn't just a lot of talk. It's living and living in God's power. And that power, my friend, is the very name and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Walk worthy today, my friends, as you cling to Jesus. I love you, and I look forward to our time again on Monday. Have a great weekend.
This is for those of you that would like to raise your children instilling God's values and His words into their lives. Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries can send you CDs of our children's program. The program includes Let's Read the Bible, Praise Time, Pray Time, and Story Time. If any of you are interested in the program, please contact the office or email us to receive the CD. I hope that this program can spread out through our English speaking children. Our office number is 602 866 8999. And email address is heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. Coming up next is a sermon. By Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary Community Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is Four Kinds of Hearts, based on Mark 4, verses 1 through 20. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. Are things hard to grow sometimes? How many of you have a hard time growing things in Arizona? Raise the hand if you do. I know some of you don't because you could grow anything, you know, and, and those kind of people, we call them what? Green thumbs. And that's great. But I have a hard time growing things in Arizona. One time Jesus told a very important parable about this kind of thing, and it's found in Mark chapter 4. So would you open your Bibles there to、uh, the fourth chapter of Mark? Jesus taught stories. They're called parables. And the point of a parable is to teach usually one thing. They're very strategic, there's a reason for them. You can't take every single piece of a parable and parse it and take it apart. That's not what they're meant. It's usually there's one point and you get the big picture. And Jesus was a master of telling stories, and he was a master of taking situations. That you're sitting in or you're watching and turning that into an illustration of what he wants to communicate. I mean, just a master teacher. And so in chapter 4, verse 1, we begin. And he, Jesus, began to teach beside the sea, the Sea of Galilee. And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. Everybody was pressing toward him so much that, I mean, their sandals were in the water. And the, they said, We better move the Lord out on a boat before they push him into the water. And so there he began to teach. And he was teaching many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, So here it comes. Listen, he says, a sower. 
Now, the sewer here is not a tailor, all right? It's, this is not the person who makes clothes. I'm not being, you know, if you knew that already, some people don't. The sower, S-O-W here, to sow means to put out seeds, to cast seeds out and like for wheat or something like that, and then they grow up. So that's the sower. He says, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. When the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So Jesus now is going to unlock the truth. I love it when he explains himself, you know, we don't have to try to scratch our heads and figure out what he's talking about. It's just a, a very clear understanding. So he does this beginning with the 14th verse. The sower, he says, sows the word. So the seed we understand now is the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when persecution or tribulation arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. Uh, they are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. Now, traditionally... This is called the parable of the sower and the seed, but I think really it's a parable about the soil. And I think you know, if you're going to call anything, say, here Jesus tells a parable about the soil. Now he wants to, probably the first application here is he wants to encourage his disciples because they're going to be going out and they're going to be sharing the word of God. And he wants them to know, hey guys, not everybody's going to accept what you have to say. You've got the good news. You've got the good word but not everybody's going to accept it. In fact, there's four kinds of people. And he's illustrated those four kinds of people here. And so the four kind of soils, four kinds of people, four kinds of hearts. And he says, I want to explain them to you. And I want, as we listen today, I want us to think about this. I think the parables explain your life. And you're going to find yourself with some kind of soil. You're going to be one of these four. And I want you to listen, and honestly, I want you to consider, what kind of soil do I have in my life? Let's work backwards. That's why I want to look at this parable. I want to start backwards with what Jesus teaches. 
Jesus talks about the best kind of soil. Look at verse 8. I call this, for those of you who take notes, I call it uh, the soil of an open heart. Verse 8. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain growing up and increasing and yielding again. He says 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. And he says, listen up, you know, that's important. These are the kind of people who hear and they have ready hearts. The soil of the heart is prepared. The soil of the heart says, Lord, whatever you have, I want to be like that soil in Oregon. I want you to be able to drop the seed in my life and there is fruit. Okay, people with ready hearts, people who have that good soil heart, the word of God produces fruit in their lives. And, you know, a lot of you are in that place right now. You are the good soil, but you can't be complacent because you notice Jesus says, it's not just, let's say, you're a 30-folder. Yeah, I'm producing fruit from Jesus. He says, oh, but there's yet what? 60-fold. So the Lord's, he says, now I want you to move on. Don't become complacent. Move on. And then if you, I'm 60-fold now. He says, oh, but there's what? A hundredfold, and I'm telling you, nobody here is going to get a hundredfold, okay? Not even when the Lord comes, because this is a progressive thing. We just keep growing and growing in the Lord. And so my prayer, of course, for you, my friends and, you know, brothers and sisters, is that we're in the good soil, and that when we hear the word, immediately finds a place in our lives, and we tend it, we take care of it. But Jesus then talks about another kind of soil. I want to refer to it as a weedy heart, okay? The soil has a problem. Verse 7 talks about it. He says, other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. The potential for growth and productivity is there, but something inhibits that and this, he says, are weeds. Nobody likes weeds. If, I, if you're sick in the hospital, I bring you a bouquet of weeds. You're thinking, what? Right? I don't like weeds. Weeds are bad. You know, some weeds, actually, the way they grow is they put out a toxin that kills other plants around them. Some have root systems that do that. They are there to choke out any good thing. Even weeds compete against weeds, don't they? And so we have got to be careful that the soil of our lives is not weedy soil. Well, Jesus gives us some example of what the weeds might be when he describes them in uh, verse 18. He says, and the others are ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, okay, but the cares of the world, that's one kind of weed, and the deceitfulness of riches... And the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. These people are true believers. I think there's no doubt there. They have received the word, but the weeds in their life. And Jesus says, okay, let's look at the first category. He says, you know, the weeds could be the cares of this world, right? He says the cares of this world. The word for cares could be translated worry or anxiety. Now, we all deal with these weeds. There is nobody here who has never worried or had anxiety or had a care. 
Of course, that's what we all deal with. And some of us are more prone to have more of those weeds in our garden than others. That's just what we tend to deal with. Jesus says, those are weeds in your life. And those weeds, that is translated care, worry, anxiety, that word in Greek literally means to pull apart, to tear apart. Worry, anxiety, care rips you apart. Because you've got one side over here, you want to trust God, you've got the other thing over here that's pulling on you, or you've got two people pulling on you, or you're trying to be the intermediator in some terrible situation, that's pulling on you, worry pulls you apart. And Jesus says, pull the weeds, okay? Pull out the anxiety. What's the root of your anxiety? Pull it up from the root. What's the cause? Jesus, show me what's the cause. Why am I insecure? Lord, show me why. And then show me the antidote. You know, the Bible does say, cast all your cares upon the Lord, for he cares for you. Another place it says, roll, keep on rolling your burden upon the Lord. We don't have to carry these things ourselves. And so there's the weedy heart. You know, another reason he says weed is the pursuit of riches. He calls it the deceitfulness of riches, not the pursuit, the deceitfulness. I'm going to stop right here by saying there's nothing wrong with you having money, all right? Money is neutral. You can have a lot of money and money is neutral. What do you do with your money is moral or immoral, all right? And so have lots of money, but what you do with it is important. How do you spend it? What's your priority? The Lord, people, your responsibilities, you know, and generosity. Once that's taken care of, God's given you all things richly to enjoy. So money is neutral, but if he says one of the weeds is the deceitfulness of riches. How many of you know that you can have a lot of money and lose it really fast? I know, this is a dumb question. I just, I'd like to see your hands. You need exercise, keeps you awake, you know. Yeah, I mean, money just has wings. You know, it flies away. Oh, that's what the Bible says. Proverbs 23, 4 and 5 says, don't weary yourself trying to get rich. Now, by the world way, this was not said by a poor man. This was written by Solomon, who was probably the richest man in the world at the time and was the wisest man in the world. And this is his wisdom. He's talking to his boys. And he's saying, boys, don't weary yourself trying to get rich. Why waste your time? For riches can disappear as though they had the wings of a bird. I'm not going to ask how many of you have lost your entire retirement or you've had some catastrophe in your life and you've lost all your savings. Some medical issue has come up in your life. Something happened in your business. Something fell apart and everything you worked so hard for is gone. It flew away. But you know, pursuing riches and not understanding how riches can deceive you. Do not be deceived by wealth, all right? Go ahead, work for it, but don't trust in it. The Bible says, Paul writes to Timothy, 
in 1 Timothy 6, 9 and 10, he says, but people who long to be rich fall into temptation. Hey, there's temptation if you're longing to be rich. This means if that's your pursuit and your reason for life, uh, foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For money, the love of money is at the root of all kinds of evil. It doesn't say money. It's a love of money. Like I said, it's neutral. And some people craving money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. See, sometimes you have to do things that aren't really right and are compromising to pursue your goal of wealth if wealth is your pursuit. Rather pursue the Lord, right? Seek the Lord first and his righteousness. All these other things will be added to you. So there's a weed of worry. There's the weeds of of the deceitfulness of riches. And Jesus goes on to say in verse 19, he says, and there's another weed. There are weeds of desires for other things. And I think that's like the Lord says, okay, and there's other weeds. I think he's just kind of throwing them all out there. Desires for other things. Pursuing top of the list other things rather than Jesus. Nothing wrong with pursuing things, but Jesus has got to be on the top priority, time, money, fellowship, family, Jesus, all of that tied together has got to be priority number one. Somebody say amen, okay? And so if the weeds are in your life, you got to pull them out, okay? If you're being deceived, you realize right now, I'm being deceived by wealth or riches or money in some way. Pull it out. What's the root of that? If it's other things, just God's spirit, give us grace, show us what it might be. That's the spirit's work. A third kind of person is one who has a shallow heart. Look at verses five and six. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, okay? And immediately it sprang up. I mean, there's not a lot of soil. It just sprang up fast. And since it had no depth of soil, it sprung up so quickly. Verse 6, and when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no, say with me, no what? Root, it withered away. I kind of think my take on this is that the shallow-hearted person is a person who decision for Jesus, and I put decision in quotations, is an emotional one, and it isn't one that really changed the heart, okay? And I think that happens a lot. I mean, we Christians, in our emotion and our praise for Jesus, people who aren't believers, they are caught up in that. They are blessed by that. The Holy Spirit is moving. The Word, of course, is moving. The the Word comes to them. But It's not a real conversion that happens. They may raise their hand, they may do something, but it's not the real thing. It's emotionalism. Now, don't get me wrong. Emotion is, I think, a necessary part of worship, all right? I think it's part of what happens when I'm saved, all right? I think emotion is almost always there when that happens. But don't confuse the shallow-hearted Decision, as I said in quotation marks, for a real heartfelt conversion. And look, I think Jesus agrees in verses six. I hope he does. I better agree with Jesus, right? 
verses 16 through 17, Jesus says, and these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones, see, listen, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. See, that's the emotion, and that's cool, but they have no what? Roots in themselves. But endure for a while, they hang in for a while, they look like a Christian for a while, but here's the test. When tribulation or persecution arises because of their beliefs, because of the word, on account of the word, they immediately fall away. So do you follow me? What I'm thinking Jesus is saying, like I say, it's a parable there to communicate big ideas. But I think he's saying, man, they're enthusiastic, but there's no root. To me, he says, okay, that's, there's no germination of the seed. There's no life. They look good immediately, the flower comes up, but a little bit of heat coming on their life, they're withered away. And in time of testing or temptation, they fall away. Some people need more of an interest in spiritual things, but they're shallow. I think these are shallow-hearted people who, they're temporary Christians, you might say. I've got quotation marks in my notes, and if you could see it, you'd understand. They're temporary. They're Christians, quote-unquote, when it's convenient. They're receivers, but not really believers. That change is cosmetic, but it's not a conversion, all right? So there's this outward, okay, but again, when the test comes, whoa, where they go? They've fallen away. They are gone. Whereas the Bible says, if anyone is in Christ, you become a new creation. The old life has passed away. Everything has become new. Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, then you take up your cross and you follow me, right? Of course, we're saved by grace through faith. It's not by following Jesus in always doing the perfect thing, but there's got to be a root. Without a root, there will be no fruit in your life. And see, Jesus, ultimately, this parable is talking about soil that receives the word and then produces fruit. That's the ultimate one goal is, you know, someday 100% fruit. Lord, make me good soil. And thus far, you know, there is redemption for every one of these soils, right? I mean, the soil that's weedy, okay, pull the weeds. And it seems like that's the only problem. Pull the weeds, you're great soil, all right? And here, look, what do you need to do? It doesn't even mention weeds yet. Get the rocks out. Pull the rocks out. There's some big things in your life that need to get out. Maybe there's some immorality in your life, something you know you should not be doing, and it's kind of a big rock. Well, pull it out. Get it out. You know, sometimes it takes a little effort to get a rock out, doesn't it? They're not all pebbles, but sometimes they're bigger ones. And you have to, uh, it's heavy, but you get them out. In those days, actually, if you go to Israel today, it's all the same as what we're reading here. You look at the fields around Galilee and Lake Galilee right now, and they have cleared the soil. It's good soil, but you look, and in some fields, it's full of weeds, And I'm thinking of the parables. Sometimes I've taught the parables there. And others, you see these stone fences all around the field. And tell me where the stones came from, out of the soil. They just pulled out all the stones as the stones come up. 
because I want the soil to be pure, amen? And so if you find a rock, throw it out, okay? Get rid of it. But for some folks, there is some big thing in your life and God's speaking to you and he's spoken to you and he says, you need to get that out of your life and you've been maybe wrestling. And I would say that Jesus' parable is pretty clear here that if you really want your root to go deep, you need to get rid of the rocks. You need to dig them out so that the root can take and think, am I just an emotional Christian? Is my life for real? It's okay to think about it. I don't want you to live in, in eternal insecurity, but did my decision for Jesus, did it involve really my accepting him, my life being changed by him? Have I seen some fruit? These poor rocky soil, there was no fruit. I'm telling you, you can pull those rocks out and you can become good soil. Now, the last group of people that Jesus talks about, the fourth kind of a person is the one who listens and hears the word but has a hard heart. Look at verse 15. The sower sows the word, and these, the hard-hearted ones, are the ones along the path where the word is sown, and now we have demonic stuff happening here. And when they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that has been sown in them. Jesus calls this rocky ground. See, this is like demonic at this point. Around the fields, I told you, we'll have those stone walls. Good sign, right? There's been some work. There's been big stuff has been pulled out. And let's say the weeds are all out. It's just a great place to sow, all right? And there's going to be a bumper crop. And around that, there are walkways. Around that 10 acres, there are paths. And people have walked around those paths so long. The dirt is compressed, and it's almost like concrete. It can rain and, and all, and the dirt doesn't even turn muddy, you know? It's still a, it's hard. And when this, the seed is sown and maybe some of it goes over that way, it can't find any place to get in. And what happens is Satan comes, hey, it says, and he eats up that seed. And then it's like absolutely no chance of any life there. Some people are hard-hearted. You know, what do you do with a hard-hearted person? I say you pray that God comes along and God breaks up that hard heart with mercy. Okay, so we moved into our first house that we actually bought, all right? A little tiny, looked like a cracker box, you know? And the yard is just dirt. And so what do I do? Somebody drives up, the guy had told me at church, I got three Mexican fan palms, you want them? And I'm thinking, yeah, free, free and three, sure. So he brings them over and they're not what I thought. I thought three, you know, like these, he pulls up with a trailer and there are three great big ones. And, you know, they're as tall as I am, a little shorter than I, and he drops them off. He says, all you need to do is plant them. And I'm thinking, okay. And so again, I've got Oregon on the brain, so I get out my shovel and I think this is where I want him. 
and I go with my shovel and I, dumb kid didn't wear gloves, you know, trying to get that hole dug. And so I go down a ways and then I hit stuff that looked white. It's called caliche. How many of you have heard of caliche? It's like Arizona natural concrete, caliche. It sounds like, you know what, grandma cooks on Sunday after church. We're going to have caliche. Oh, caliche. Yum. No. This was crazy. And you know, depending on where you live, it can be thick or thin. You know, it's like frosting that was spread over the cake. You know, it's thick here. It's thin here. And then it dried like concrete. And so, oh my goodness. So I finally got the hole the size of, of the container. And then somebody told me, oh, you know, if you want the tree to go, it's got to be twice the size of the container. I go, you kidding me? Shut up. It's going to go in that hole. And if it lives, it lives. If it dies, it dies. And then I looked, I have two more to do, you know. Curse these trees, you know. Some hearts are that way. Some hearts are just so hard. Now, I don't know why there's, I don't understand, you know, why something could have happened. Why is the caliche there? a foot under the, I don't understand. I don't know what made the heart hard, but I know that it can keep you from receiving the seed of the word. It can keep you from growing. It can keep you from salvation. Now, what we need is like a jackhammer, you know, to break through. What we need is something drastic to happen. And I pray that. Maybe you know somebody's got the hard heart, Maybe, you know, they're the person you're married to. Maybe they're a child or maybe, you know, hey, it's you. I said, let's look at us. Let's look. What kind of soil am I? What kind of a person am I? Am I, you know, it's good with me and the Lord right now. But I want to do more. Is it, you know, I just got stuff I need to get pulled out of my life. Go to the root of. Do you have big things you need to take out? Things you know are disobedience to the Lord? Things you need to get out? It might be heavy. You know, sometimes, listen, sometimes when it's big, great, big, other people help you. That's why there's brothers and sisters around. That's why you get somebody you can trust and they'll help you. Let's help you get this out. We understand. We We needed help too. But then maybe you're here, you know, and your deal is you're just real hard hearted. You know, the problem with what made the heart, the ground hard was repeatedly something happened to the soil. In that case, it was people walking on it. I think spiritually, it's when you've heard the word and you say no, and you hear it again and you say no. Eventually, you know, you get hardened. The Bible says really clearly, today, if you hear his voice, if you hear God's voice speaking to you, and calling you to follow him. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Says that, I think, three times. Do not harden your heart. God isn't hardening your heart. You harden your heart. And the cool thing is, in a moment, God can break the crusty heart, and God can give you a heart of flesh, and it can happen in a moment. And I think it's one of those, I give in, I give up. I'm tired of having this hard heart. 
I want you to understand there's a spiritual battle going on. Jesus says Satan is there and Satan wants to snatch away the seed. There's a spiritual battle in your life. And if you haven't given your life to Jesus, it's heaven or hell. Satan wants to pull you away. He does not want you to go to heaven. I prayed for you. I've been praying for you for three weeks because I knew what I was going to teach. And I knew that I was going to come to this minute and I was going to talk to you just like I am and I was going to ask you to give in to the Lord and to say, Lord, I don't want to have a heart to heart anymore. And Jesus will soften your heart and the word will go right into your heart and you can be saved. It's miserable to live with a hard heart. I don't know why you are. You know, at this point, it doesn't matter. At this point, it is. You're here because God knows what was going to be said and it's time. And so in just a moment, everybody hold still for a second. In just a moment, I'm gonna ask you to pray to accept Jesus as your savior. And I kind of have a hunch, you don't need to hear the whole story about what Jesus has done for you. Died for your sins, all the wrong things you've done. He will forgive you and all your sins will be forever gone in God's eyes. He will save you, you'll be his forever. He'll never let go of you. I don't think you need to know a lot more than that because you've heard it, that's the problem over and over and over. But before I pray with you, I'm gonna pray and invite you to accept Jesus in just a couple minutes. Before I do that, I wanna address those of you who are the other three soils. And again, I want you to think, if you're serving God, you do more. I want you to think, if there's weeds, it's weed pulling time. It's not fun, but go to the root. If there's rocks, just one more time, hear me. The Lord wants you to pull the rocks out. Get some help if you need. Do the hard thing. So those of us, it's time to accept the Lord. Let's bow our heads. Let's close our eyes. I'm asking for people to pray for the person in front of you or behind you or next to you. Maybe somebody that you saw when you came in and God's bringing them to your mind right now to pray for. Bible says today if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Now it's a day of salvation, the Bible says. The Bible says whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It is not hard for you to be saved and to become a Christian. You call on the name of the Lord. Now, that means prayer and maybe you don't know even what to say. So I'm going to pray a simple prayer. I'm going to ask you to pray it with me. I'm not going to ask you to pray it aloud. Don't do that right now, okay? Just pray it between you, me, and the Lord and know that you've got more people praying for you right now than you've ever had in your life. So let's pray together, you, me, and the Lord. Pray this prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for loving me and for sending Jesus to die for all the wrong things that I've done. I'm sorry for my sins that I've put this off. I need you. I believe that you died for me 
that you were buried and that you rose from the dead for me. Please come into my life. Make me a new person. Give me a brand new start. And right now, I accept you as my Savior and my Lord. This concludes today's series of Unity in Christ. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.